the large companies will continue to survive because Apple will sell physical devices. And so maybe they don't care if they don't make money on the streaming side. But I care, not because I'm Wave, but because I think that the community wants a business model that is going to work across the board for everybody. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. How do you consume digital media? If you're like most of us, it's probably a combination of comprehensive membership services, one-off purchases, and possibly a few subscriptions for independent publications you want to support. But what if you could get all of your name-brand music, magazines, and other media in one place, and share your access with family and friends? That's the audacious goal proposed by Stephanie Scappa, the co-founder and CEO of Wave. In this episode of Hack the Process, Stephanie will tell us why the services we're using are failing the content creators, how she negotiated deals with some of the biggest streaming music libraries, and what tools she relies on to help her prioritize her day. Today I'm speaking with Stephanie Scappa. She is the founder and CEO of Wave, that's spelled W-E-Y-V, a company that is changing the way that we're going to be consuming our media in the future. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to meet you. And I'm always interested in chatting with people who have really audacious goals, like changing the way that we consume media. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hefty goal, no question. Well, what is the intention? What, what, what is the thing about Wave that makes it different, that's really going to make it take over the world? So the biggest thing that differentiates us is really around the business model and the way that we provide access with the business model. And so it's a unit-based model. And the way I think about it is more like a library card where you're able to check in and out content and you can share your library card with your family or really with 25 of your closest friends because <laughs> you can have 25 people in your group. And the limitation of access of your group is determined by simultaneous use. And so what that means is if I check out, so to speak, music and I'm listening to music, then somebody else isn't able to listen to music or read a magazine at the same time unless we have enough access that we've purchased. So that's really the biggest difference, I would say, on the business model. And across the board, the key for us is really this concept of changing the digital economy. If you think about right now in our ecosystem, a lot of the content that is being created, like news or blogs or podcasts, <laughs> they're being distributed then almost for free. And if not for free, then usually with advertising included, which means that consumers data is essentially what the purchase price <laughs> ends up being. And so, you know, for us, we're trying to make sure that the IP creators of this content are fairly compensated and also giving a user a way to better access and pay for will say the content that brings them value and they want to have access to. So we pay out based on usage. 
fascinating. It's one of the things I always feel bad about when I'm consuming, you know, air quotes, free media online. I know that the person who created it isn't getting any compensation, but somebody who's running the network, somebody in some big office somewhere is probably getting some cut of the money and somebody is getting a lot of information about me that I didn't necessarily want to share. Yep, exactly. And most people aren't willing to, you know, for the news is an easy example because most of us, unless we're avid New York Times readers or Wall Street Journal readers, we're not willing to commit to a subscription that only gives us access there. And the same thing across all the many different types of content and distributors. But, you know, we are willing to contribute something to read an article but not if you're sort of asking us to do it on a consistent basis, let's say. It's a lot easier to feel good about, yes, I'm contributing, but I have one account, one subscription. I know my budget. It's not going to be this complicated. I have to click to pay, you know, a dollar every time I want to read an article or something. It's just much more seamless and easy to access and use. I think that's one of the reasons why services like Netflix and Spotify have become very popular because you're paying one subscription fee and you get access to the entire range of media that they provide. But I don't think they're talking about doing it with this I guess it's token-based system or subscription-based system. How do you define this? So for us, we really think about it, you know, as a monthly subscription, I would say in that sense. And what we've done is we have these units that enable access to the different content. And so it's a little different, I think, than the way others have done it because we're able to then set different content at different pricing. And so what I mean by that is realistically in the world of content, not all content is equivalent. So some content has a higher value both to the end user and to the creator potentially, whereas other content may have a lower value. And an easy example of that would be a movie that was just released that's up for nomination, so forth, versus a movie that came out 20 years ago that was seen by 10,000 people and is probably not going to make it over the 20,000 mark in its lifetime. (laughs) And so... For us, in our model, it's not just sort of the library card aspect, but it does allow for different levels within that. And so what I mean is because it's units, what happens is if you listen to music, it's drawing 10 units out of your pool and it's holding those 10 units to run your music. Whereas if you want to read a magazine, it might cost you 15 units to read that magazine. And as we continue to add content, the content creators have control then over how many units they feel their content is worth and would be valued at. And so it gives sort of this balance within the ecosystem, really differentiating not just the multi-content aspects then, but the ability to offer the different types of content. Because you look at like an Amazon Prime where they do offer the multi-content, but they can't do it with a full catalog of music and a full catalog of books and so forth because they can't differentiate every piece of content within that portfolio that they offer is otherwise equivalent, which isn't really true. That's interesting. So I've been thinking now also about services like Spotify, where you pay one, one price and I don't think they really do differentiate among the different pieces of content. No, they don't. And because of that on the music side, at the moment, neither do we. So all music draws the same units, whether it's a song that's just been released or, you know, a song from the 80s that may not be very popular. But 
that has more to do with sort of industry expectations for consumers. With that expectation out there, it's going to be kind of hard to wean people off of the idea that they can get the latest release for free, essentially, once they've paid that subscription price. Yeah, it definitely is one of our hurdles. It's different across the different types of content, though. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe it means we never change music and music itself is always going to be 10 units for every song. And maybe that's okay. Whereas when we look to add different types of content right now, even magazines are set at two different tiers. You know, magazines that are less popular are set at five units and more popular like Time and Fortune and People are set at 10 units. And so when it comes to content that doesn't have sort of a stigma around it already, it gives us more flexibility to showcase our model and give people a chance to see it. That's interesting. So the fact that music has made such advances in terms of online distribution sets them behind other media potentially because other media have the opportunity to take advantage of this model. Yeah, you could definitely say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. Now, trying to visualize this as a potential subscriber, when people sign up for the service, they pay a monthly fee and do they get a certain number of units for that fee? Exactly. So depending on what fee they subscribe to really depends on the cost. So When you look on our website, you see that for one user to have simultaneous access, that's 10 units at the highest level. And so you might sign up for one user, you might sign up for two users, which would be 20 units, three users would be 30 units, and so forth. And so you really have the flexibility to determine how many simultaneous users you want to have access, but it won't cost you anything additional when you're thinking across the number of people in your group. So you can have up to 25 people that have access to your units in your group and adding somebody to your group doesn't cost you anything additional. It's just about how many simultaneous users you want to be able to give access. And of course, if one of those users is using all the units, nobody else can use anything until they check them back in. Exactly. (laughs) We have that in our household where there will often be calls sent out, you know, I have four sisters. (laughs) And so I get calls of get off. I want to listen now. (laughs) (laughs) This is reminding me of my childhood with access to the modem and the hang up the telephone. I need to get online to do my homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it is like that. (laughs) I'm old enough to remember those days. (laughs) Is there like a 10 unit cap on the value of the content in, in the sense that a single user with an account that only has 10 units should be able to access at least everything? At the moment, yes. And so, you know, for our Our plan as we sort of continue into the future here would be to grandfather people in so that they'll continue to have access at the level they subscribe into. But yep, at the moment. Okay, I could see how that could evolve over time. That could become very interesting for unit arbitrage with artists. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a fascinating model, and I do see how it could change the way people look at consuming content online. Where did this come from? So this concept really came from our parent company's CEO, who, full disclosure here, is my father. Uh-huh. On the B2B side, the way that the software model works for Altera as the parent company is leveraging this unit's concept. 
And so Altair has over 5,000 companies as customers and lots of names you would expect and anticipate. So, you know, every major automobile and airplane, (laughs) even consumer products, goods, they use this model on the business side. How do they use it? I'm trying to picture this. So basically, Altair has a suite of 30 different software applications, and it works the same way where a company like Ford would purchase a pool of these units and they would allow for their users to check out software applications priced at different price points. And so if you think about like the Microsoft suite, it's an easy consumer one to compare to. You've got Word, you've got Excel, you've got PowerPoint, and you can imagine Word might draw 10 units, Excel might draw 15, PowerPoint may draw five. And so when one user at Ford has Excel open, it's drawing the 15 units from Ford's pool. And when the user closes Excel, those 15 units go back in the pool and can be used then by any user in the pool across any of the different types of software. Interesting. So is is Altair's business around licensing software? Yeah. So Altair actually has 30 or so software applications that it licenses. And it also, on top of that, distributes about 150 third-party software applications under the same business model with the same units. So it's very similar to what Wave has done on the consumer side, where it's only distributing third-party content. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really to users. And so we cut the time subscription period down from one year to one month. Interesting. Okay. So I I can see where the technology origin comes from. But this vision for changing the media landscape, how did that come about? So it sort of came with the business model in the sense that, you know, when this business model concept first was thought up and Jim patented it back when he originally put it in place on the business side in addition. And so taking sort of a look at the landscape on the consumer side and seeing a lot of the challenges, you know, at the time, really, you had Napster, which was sort of a big disaster for the music industry as a whole. And now even continuously, this is, I don't know, eight years later here, still we're having similar challenges with news and blogs and tons of different content that really isn't able to sort of earn revenue, we'll say, as many would actually stand up and say they should be, and they deserve to have some compensation. And so sort of looking at the business model and seeing how it can be applied and how it can have a much bigger impact was really the evolution of where it came from. I see. I see. Is this something that you brought to the table when you you realized that there was the opportunity there for something like this? No, this was definitely all his idea from the beginning. What I brought was mostly bringing it to life. (laughs) So actually, I got involved about eight years ago. We were talking on vacation one day, and he said that he was thinking about taking this now and rolling it to consumer, and I wanted to get more involved. And so since, I would say, five years now, I've really been running it. In the beginning, I worked more as part of a team, sort of beginning to ideate and come up with how this could come to life and testing the waters and, you know, seeing what might work. 
And over time, I've sort of earned my place, <laughs> I guess mm -hmm. I would say. You know, I didn't really start as CEO. I started as just the product manager and working with the team. Now, were you already working with Altair? Because I, I understand you already have sort of a double career going. I do have a double career and I joined Altair for Wave originally. And what happened was I was working on Wave as a side project before I joined Altair. And then one of my colleagues that I had been working with, he had an opening on his team that he thought would be perfect for me to do partner management and onboarding. And so I ended up joining Altair at that moment and have stayed with Altair now for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be very challenging balancing the entrepreneurial stuff that you're doing kind of as a side hustle on top of the work you're doing as part of the business. It really is because, you know, being an entrepreneur in general has its own time that you really need to dedicate and spend towards it. So I definitely have two full-time jobs in that sense. But what I would say is that the team that I have been surrounded with and built really makes a big difference in order for me to balance my time and my schedule and accomplish both. It's sort of my strategy and how I run my team that I really trust my team members and I bring on people that have very different skill sets and opinions from a different, sort of a different perspective, I would say. And I have to trust that they can do their job better than I can. So, you know, my chief marketing officer, as an, an easy example, I'm an engineer at heart. <laughs> I'm not great at marketing. And as much as I like to think sometimes that I have the best marketing idea ever, I really remind myself all the time that, nope, she's the one that I picked. I'm going to trust her. And it has really paid off, I would say, for me trusting my team. It can be very difficult for somebody in a leadership position to learn how to delegate responsibilities and not to try to do everything themselves. I think that's very true. And I think for me, it was a little forced in the sense that I didn't have the bandwidth to do everything myself. And so if I didn't delegate, things wouldn't get done. I only have so much time in the day. And though I work more than some people may think I should, you know, it, there's still a limitation. So I learned pretty quickly and it was definitely a very good lesson for me to learn. I'm always curious about how people in a position like that manage to organize themselves. How do you set up a sustainable lifestyle for yourself around all the things you're trying to do? I am an avid user of Wonderlist. It is an app that's really, it's just a to-do list sort of app where you can track all your to-dos and check them off as you go. I use it on the personal side. I use it on the Altair corporate development side, as well as with the Wave team. And it gives me a chance to put in all the to-dos that I need to do, see what my team is working on, what their priorities are. It gives me sort of this high-level view. And the key for me to be successful in being able to handle two roles is all about prioritizing. And so by using Wonderlist, I'm able to not just keep a to-do list, but each day I choose my top three items that I'm going to get done that day, and I get those done. The reason that's so valuable for me is because every day something falls off the table. <laughs> there is no possibility 
I mean, I work easily 10 hour days and there's still no possibility to get everything done. And I just need to make sure that what falls off the table is what I want to fall off the table. And I'm making a conscious choice about that, not just letting what I like doing the least (laughs) sort of fall off the table. That's wonderful. It sounds like a very useful tool. And it's for personal time management or does it also help you with setting priorities for people on your team? It's both. It really mostly is for setting priorities for the team. And, you know, I go through it with my team members in one-on-one calls because I'm a little old-fashioned in that sense. My team's very virtual and we do lots of communication through Jira, through Microsoft Teams. But I still believe that one-on-one calls actually touching base with somebody and talking to them can really add value. And so on those calls, we often will use Wonderlist to sort of reorganize and decide what we're prioritizing for this week and next week and so forth in order to set goals and be on the same page for what we're looking to get done. So if if it's all calls and tools like that, I'm guessing that your team is geographically distributed? Very. (laughs) (laughs) Between my two teams, we hit... Probably five different countries. (laughs) Wow. How do you keep track of all of that with different people working at different times? What I really do is there's a set period of time where everybody on the team ends up sort of working together and being based in California, it ends up being 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. my time. Mm -hmm. And that ends up being evening in India for those guys. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's sort of a three-hour period across all my teams, including Europe. That same 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific time is also, you know, the end of day in Europe. And so that is sort of our middle ground for everyone. And it's not that much time, but it does give us a chance to stay in sync across the time zones. And then other than sort of during that period, We're still communicating throughout email and other types of exchanges, JIRA and so forth, in order to stay in sync and work together. Okay. And I can hear your engineering background coming out if you're using JIRA to communicate with your team. (laughs) Yeah, but you'd be surprised. Altair uses JIRA for even our legal tickets and structure internally. JIRA has taken over the world. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to tell my friends at Atlassian that it's working. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about the engineering background that you bring to this. And are you involved with the engineering side of this company? My engineering background is industrial and operations engineering. I went to University of Michigan. So what I would say is that my engineering degree is something that enables me to understand what's happening at sort of a higher level, let's say. So when the development team is having discussions, for the most part, (laughs) I can understand really what's going on and contribute at a higher level. I obviously cannot contribute down when they get into the weeds of exactly what they're doing. But sort of from an engineering thinking standpoint, I really am able to add value because I can step outside and see a bigger picture that they may not see at the small scale. And that's really on the wave side. On the Altair side, I really use my engineering degree pretty extensively because what I do is all around partnerships for Altair. So for me, most of those partnerships have to do with technology companies, and I need to be able to understand their technology in order to decide if a partnership will add value for us. 
And so it's a fun aspect of my engineering degree. Having an engineering background can really help you understand what's going on, but being able to step back and take the broad view and see from a leadership perspective what the context is, that's invaluable. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me now because when I first started working on Wave, I had a hard time stepping back and sort of seeing the bigger picture. And over time, I have sort of learned that there are moments to be, you know, elbow deep in the details and helping to contribute. And at the same time, I have to remember that I need to take a breath and sort of step back and look to see what's the bigger picture. Where are we going? Does this still make sense from a higher level or not? And it did take time to learn. It's hard to learn those things. I'm wondering if you had any mentors or people along the way who helped you with that. I've had millions of mentors. <laughs> I did not get here by myself. There is no doubt in my mind. I've had some really phenomenal mentors throughout the time that I've been at Altair and even beyond that. I think that often people think mentors have to always be somebody that's above you in sort of your career station, let's say, and the reporting structure. And I really don't believe that. I think that, you know, you can learn different things from different people at all different levels if you're asking the right questions and understanding some of their thinking. You know, you get some of the best feedback on how to manage the younger generation from them directly than you do from somebody who's, you know, twice their age and just learning themselves how this next generation wants to be managed. So I think that that's a big part of it is just being curious and learning where you can. That makes a lot of sense. And it's hard sometimes for people to realize that it's possible to view somebody who's junior as a mentor if they have something that they can teach. Yep. I agree. The experience that you brought to this, I'm really curious about the challenges that you faced in trying to bring about this notion of wave. I mean, you're coming up against some really big competitors. Yeah, (laughs) I think that is absolutely true. I mean, we're going head to head with the largest companies in the world, really. And with every startup, I would say there's always sort of looking at it and There's going to be people that say there's no way and can't possibly do that. For us, we recognize very fully how much of an underdog we are, (laughs) but we believe in the idea and we really believe that there's something to this concept of the way the consumer world is consuming and accessing the digital content today. And we think that the model is broken. And so we think that, well, there have been segments (laughs) that are starting to work and starting to really gain traction in market like our big competitors. We do think that when you're thinking about the broader picture, there is something to be said for the way we're approaching it with our business model. How do you mean? What I mean is really that, you know, if you think about the success that Apple, you see Apple and Spotify right now in the news battling (laughs) and Spotify's, you know, suing in order to try to get lower publishing royalty rates. And effectively, Apple is saying that they're trying to not compensate songwriters appropriately and that Apple wants to pay people. But what you don't see is does Apple actually turn a profit on just their streaming business? Because <laughs> I would sort of doubt that they do. And so my point around it all is that, you know, while you're seeing things gain traction, 
I don't know how many of those companies are really in the end going to, with that business independently, turn a profit and make it successful for the user, for the content producer, and for themselves to be able to continue to survive. I mean, the large companies will continue to survive because Apple will sell physical devices. And so maybe they don't care if they don't make money on the streaming side. But I care, not because I'm Wave, but because I think that the community wants a business model that is going to work across the board for everybody. And so I, I think that there's something to be said for that. That's interesting. And that model has to be sustainable, which means it has to provide enough profit to keep a company like Wave in business while simultaneously providing the revenue stream that the artists need in order to continue creating. Exactly. That doesn't seem to be consistent with the model that's been developing around Spotify, Apple, all of these other companies that are trying to aggregate the streaming media. So I'm really curious how you, as the CEO and co-founder of this company, plan to solve that problem. Is there actually a sustainable business model around what you're doing, or do you have a bigger picture that goes beyond this? No, I do think that there is a sustainable business model but I think the approach to it needs to be slightly different. And so I think our business model, I mean, it looks similar <laughs> to some extent, but the aspects that make it really different are the multi-content and the ability for multiple different types of content to have a place at different value. So I think that those are sort of the two big differentiators that we bring to the table. And without those, I think it's really hard because otherwise, even if you can add the multi-content aspect in, unless you're able to set different values for the different content, it's never going to be sustainable. And by doing that, you're able to give users the ability to choose at what level they want. Do they want access to, you know, the most expensive things or are they okay with access to, you know, just some of the lower level things and they can set their budget and they can appropriately manage that. And then we can appropriately compensate the content producers because they also have a little bit more control in the ecosystem. They don't get to control their price to the end user, but they get to control their value in relation to others, which in my opinion is something unique and pretty valuable for all sides. Interesting. So one of the things that I notice about Wave is that it has a lot of content from, from really big name companies. It's got the Time Magazine. It's got these huge record labels. How did you manage to get that happening? So, I mean, it's all a negotiation. We actually began for Wave just trying to identify what type of content are we going to move on first? Because our goal is not to be a content distributor and take over the world and all of those sorts of things. Our idea is to be the platform to allow the connection between the content creators and the consumers. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a different approach than you might see from others. But for us, we went in and we had discussions with the different organizations, the different labels. And we explain to them our business model and why they should believe in us enough to allow for their content to be included in our application and our platform. And I suppose it was an individual negotiation with them, as it would be with any artist, how much they get compensated. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And for us, let's just say we pay more than anybody else <laughs> because we believe in fair compensation. 
And so most of the negotiation really wasn't around the rates that we should pay for users to have access and to stream. That really wasn't the hardest piece for us because we want to make sure there's a sustainable model that works across the board for everybody. And a part of that is making sure content creators get compensated appropriately. And that makes sense. Are you reaching out to small content creators as well? Absolutely. The one challenge with that is ingesting smaller content creators content. So it depends on the type of content. We have tons of, you know, smaller content producers on sort of the magazine and ebook side at the moment. Music is a little bit more challenging for us just from an ingestion technical standpoint, but it's certainly on our roadmap. And that sounds like one of those temporary hurdles that you just need to figure out the technology and get over. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) It's not something specific to the music industry, as we were discussing before, how music has already been commodified online. No, not at all. I mean, at this point, we have every major label included, and we have over 200 independent labels. So it's really not a question on that aspect. We've got a huge catalog, over 20 million songs. I mean, very substantial But being able to add, you know, millions of producers and labels just becomes more of a technical challenge for us every time. (laughs) It's a shame because 20 million songs, that sounds incredible, but it's kind of just table stakes in the music industry. It's all relative (laughs) because if you look at the content, it's the 80-20 rule where, you know, 20% of the content is really used by 80% of the population. So we have pretty much everything you'd want with the exception of a few at the moment. But test us. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a challenging opportunity. And you also have a bunch of ebooks and magazines, you said. Yeah, absolutely. We have a huge catalog of different ebooks. The ebooks are actually my favorite. Personally, I have two nieces, one that is two and one that is four. And the ebooks actually read to you and turn the pages as they go. And my nieces love, love, love the ebooks. <laughs> it's a computer voice, right? Yeah, it is. But it's pre-recorded, so it doesn't sound like Siri talking to you. <laughs> oh, pre-recorded. Interesting. So it streams a voice. It doesn't... Yeah, yeah. It's streaming. Yeah, it's streaming. I think there is some automation. We don't do the recordings ourselves, but, you know, I think it's all it's all automated there. So That's really interesting. So I was going to bring up Audible, which is kind of where Amazon has been playing a little bit with options that are more similar to this with varied pricing and, and streaming. It sounds like you're also kind of making a play in that area. Yeah, at the moment it's just kids ebooks for us. We're still trying to identify what the right path is and we've put a strong focus on families because we believe that families are really how you consume most of this consumer content together. That's been the initial step, but yeah, absolutely an interesting topic for us as we move forward. So, you talk about families and you talk about sharing content among small groups of people. It naturally lends itself to questions about social media and promotion and getting that kind of sharing going. Yeah, we let you share what we call wave notes and a little play on words because they can be music notes or written notes. (laughs) You can share them, you know, through text message even or through social media in order to bring somebody else in the loop, whether you're reading an article you want somebody else to be able to see and have access to or listening to a song that you just love and you want to (laughs) spread. Absolutely. 
That's nice. So it's kind of getting to the point where it's now out there. It's one of the consumer services. And it took several years to get here. Is this kind of what you envisioned when you started out? Yeah, I would say we're getting close to that. You know, we've been in the market for a year now, so still feels a little early. And we had some initial regulation hurdles actually on the music side. And I won't bore you with the long story, but the short story is that we couldn't release our full catalog of music until December, this last December. So only just a few months ago. And there was a new legislation that was passed by the government in order to now allow us to do so. So (laughs) it really has just in the last few months become much, much more what I imagined. Whereas, you know, before, I'll be honest, it was, you know, learning opportunity for us to get things right, but hard competitively if you've got only a third of your catalog available. Oh, I can imagine. And and everybody kind of makes that snap judgment the first time they see a service. And are they going to come back now? Yep, for sure. There was a lot of that in the first year. But now that, you know, things have settled and we are fully out there, it's really looking fantastic for us. We're having really strong growth this year. And we're energized because, as you said, it's all about the first impression. And we got well over our growth numbers last year for downloads, which means that there's a lot of interest and attention that people were willing to pay to try us. But, you know, it's hard to retain users without a full catalog. And so we're very excited about this year and things are absolutely on track for us. That's really exciting. And so the, the way that you put this all together, I'm curious, where do you think that your next hurdle is beyond where you are right now? I think the next hurdle for us really is about choosing the next type of content. So, you know, we're about to release podcasts and that's really fantastic. We're very excited about it. But after podcasts, then it becomes more of a question of what should we do next? And the hurdle is mostly around trying to make the right decision because you only get one chance as a startup (laughs) in some (laughs) regards. And so it's really mostly on that right now. Now, I would say there's always an opportunity to pivot. And I'm guessing that in five years, you've had you've had the opportunity to see a couple of pivots where you were going in one direction and realized you needed to change. We have absolutely pivoted. But the difference, I think, in this moment is it's sort of our main opportunity to shine right now. And so we're full steam ahead and we want, really want to keep things going in that direction. But I, I totally agree. We're in it for the long haul. So we will pivot if need be. No question. There's a lot of attention on you right now and everybody's is looking to you to see how you're going to bring it to the next level. I'm curious, how does that feel and how do you deal with it? So I think it's not as stressful in some regards for me because I recognize how much of a team effort it is. And, you know, I'm not really doing that much in that sense. You know, I'm making decisions and I'm helping to point in directions, but I'm taking feedback from everywhere, from the data, from our users directly, from the team, really to understand the thinking. And so it's not a dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't feel like this is a moment where I am standing out on an island by myself deciding what I'm going to do next. I'm feeling more stabilized, let's say, by everybody and the data and information around me. 
That makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned one of the things that I'm always interested in when you're running a service for consumers is that you're getting feedback from your consumers. How do you gather that feedback? We gather it in many, many different ways. So, of course, directly asking consumers, um, so surveys and questions, even just when we will release new ideas and test new features, we'll hand the phone to a user and ask them to walk through a workflow and we can see what's happening and get some feedback on how it feels and so forth. But mostly how we get our data around it is actually looking at what the user's doing within the app because, of course, what they're saying adds value but what they do can be even more impactful. And so being able with mobile apps and with web platforms, you're really able to understand exactly what users are doing and what they're listening to. And so you can make adjustments based on those things. And in addition, it's what drives our recommendation engine. We're able to then adjust what we think will be most interesting for you. And it's been a big focus for us for 2019 is all around the recommendation side. Oh, that's interesting. What kind of challenges have come up around that? So the biggest challenge for us was as a wave team, we didn't have a huge amount of expertise on the machine learning and AI side, but Altair did an acquisition in December of a company named Data Watch, which was all about data intelligence. And they have a division that has a product named Knowledge Studio, which is all for machine learning and AI. And so they have been really working with us closely to help us enhance and improve our recommendations directly. Altair is a unique company in the sense that there are always side projects. We call them innovation projects that Altair is running. And it helps our teams test and sort of extend beyond what customers might be doing in general. And so like one of the other innovation projects Altair has right now is a company named Toggled, which is all about solid state lighting. And so this is LED lighting. So replacement floor fluorescent tubes, they've got smart lights and all kinds of great capabilities on sort of the building smart concept in general. And it's really helped Altair understand more on the Internet of Things side. We also have an IoT platform and we did an acquisition the end of last year in addition that was edge computing and so it gives effectively Altair the ability to test some of the technology with a potential customer like a lighting company <laughs> and start to see how things come together. And by working together, each side is able to benefit and learn from each other. That's very cool. So it sounds like you're targeting family users to start with. Is that your primary target audience? We are targeting families. I would say it is absolutely our target audience, but a family doesn't have to be defined the way Apple sees it, where you have to live in one household, so to speak. A family is really your community of people. How are you reaching those folks? Paid digital media. It's where, for us, we see the direct conversion that we're able to track and understand. In addition, we do a lot of influencer marketing because we believe that it's best to get recommendations from people that a user respects and has an interest in. So that's a really strong strategy for us in addition. 
And the third, I would say, is all about trying to build brand awareness. And so this takes place in multiple different forums, but we're effectively trying different ideas all the time. So we're trying and testing out whether or not putting some cards into subscription boxes like BarkBox would work. And that's one that we discovered didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we've tested out events. And so for us, being a startup, the biggest advantage we have is the flexibility to test and see what works for us. Fascinating. And so one of the places you're reaching out, obviously, is through these podcasts like mine. And I'm curious if you could tell my listeners how they can find out more about Wave and maybe get involved. Absolutely. So the best way to find us is go to the website at wave.com. It's W-E-Y-V. And we actually have a promo code that's HACK19. So it's H-A-C-K-1-9. And that gets you two free months, no strings attached, to the first 50 listeners who enter the code. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm sure everybody will appreciate that. Absolutely. And I have to ask one last question. Where did the name come from? (laughs) W-E-Y-V. It's a good question. So originally, it came from some of the way the design looked like waves and then it sort of evolved for us and we really liked that it was a bit of a play on words with wave being sound waves or making waves in the market we liked that it was a bit more ambiguous and the spelling came from it's actually the phonetic spelling so if you look it up (laughs) for wave w-a-v-e you'll see that it's spelled w-e-y dot v (laughs) <laughs> that, that engineer in you is always going to come to the surface. It is. I can't help it. It was before we had a chief marketing officer. <laughs> There's a lot of us. <laughs> That's fair. Well, Stephanie, it's such a pleasure meeting you, and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great to speak with you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.